Yeah, yeah, right? Here's the sick and twisted part of me. I have literally been waiting for that moment right there all week long because I knew everybody. Like, I don't, I hate snakes, but I know some people like really, really hate snakes. My heart is pounding right now. And I just want to know where in the world that island is so I can stay as far away from it as possible. That was actually a depiction of what happens when you go to a used car lot. But... Uh, <laughs> If you, if you notice in, in that moment, what, what do you notice about that little, and I'm really honestly not sure what's more creepy, the number of snakes there are, or that iguana running. That is pretty creepy in itself, all right? What, but what do you notice about that poor little iguana? He's what? He, he's, he's alone. He is utterly alone until the very end. If you continue to watch the clip, there's another iguana that was smart and stayed up on the very top there so snakes couldn't get to him. But he's alone. And here's a fact. It is not good for us to be alone. In fact, from the beginning of Scripture to the very end, it is clear that God does not intend for us to do life in isolation. In fact, in the second chapter, God hasn't even begun began to hardly tell his story, and he tells us in the second chapter of his story, it is not good for man to be alone. And while that deals clearly and very explicitly and specifically with companionship and what would become covenant relationship of marriage, there is no mistaking that whether it's that or any other point in life, God does not intend for any of us to go through life without the presence of another. And as our opening clip perfectly illustrates, bad things, very, very bad things happen when we find ourselves alone. Do you, do you need more convincing of this? And if you do, then consider this video clip. One kick from those hooves can break a lion's jaw. Lions are sprinters, not marathoners. They can hit 35 miles an hour, but only for a few seconds. So they team up, approaching their prey from different angles. Zebras learn to keep their distance. But one zebra is about to violate the first rule of the safari. Always stay with the group. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9 give us this warning in connection with this video clip. It says this, stay alert. Stay alert and watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. But we can't do 1 Peter chapter 5. We can't do anything that we talk about this morning alone. It takes many of us together to make 1 Peter chapter 5 possible. Here is the honest-to-goodness truth, whether you believe it or not. This is the picture that Scripture paints, that we all need each other. We all need someone 
in our life. We're made to be a part of a group. We're made to be a part, as, as Brian talked about in his communion meditation, we're made to be a part of a community. But here's a very ironic twist as I have begun to, I've been preparing this sermon this week and thought about it and it's just been in my mind. The ironic twist of community is, is that we often keep our own selves and we often keep other people out of community. And one of the biggest reasons I am convinced, and I'm just going to get real this morning, I'm going to get kind of raw. I think the reason that most of us keep ourselves and we keep others out of community is that because we spend most of our life pretending. What do I mean by that? I don't think it's too big of a surprise to most of us in this room if we're really gut honest with ourselves is that we all like to pretend in life. Even from an early age as children, we like to live fantasies and pretend and play act. And guess what happens? That never really stops all the way into adulthood. We all like to think and we like to have those around us think that we all have it together more than we really do. We want people to think that we're always a good parent. We want people to think that we're always a good spouse. We want people to think that we're always a good friend. We want people to think that we're always a really good neighbor. And so what we do to keep up that front is that we manage and we begin to what I call manicure our image. We present ourselves in exactly the way that we want people to see us. We put up our fronts, we put up our walls, because that will keep people away from seeing who we are really at the core. And if we're just really honest with ourselves, every one of us that walked in here this morning, at the core of us are broken. We are really, really messed up when it comes down to it. And then what we do is we put that mask on and we show those around us who we want them to believe we really are. But here's what happens. When you begin to massage your image, when you begin to manicure your image, what you do is you become an imaginary person. It's really, it's not the real you that you're projecting to people and you're presenting to people in your life. And if there is one thing, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you might convince yourself that you can do this, you cannot love something that is imaginary. I mean, maybe for a period of time, yes, you can love something that's made up and not real and imaginary. But long-term, guys, fake never works. Fantasies never measure up. Imaginary becomes unsustainable. And it's no less true with us. When we touch things up, when we Photoshop ourselves, we become something less than us. We actually become not even us at all when we do that. We become unknowable, we become unrelatable, we become unlovable, and we disqualify ourselves from true, deep, authentic community. And that is what the Bible would call hypocrisy. And hypocrisy happens simply when what you show people in public, what you present yourself to be, does not match up what people would see of you in private, when your reputation supersedes your substance, when your public persona trumps your personal character. 
In fact, listen to how Jesus characterizes the sickness of hypocrisy. In the book of Mark chapter 12, he says this, and these were the people that he constantly went after in his ministry, most often the Pharisees, starting in verse 38. He says, beware. Beware of these teachers of religious law, the Pharisees, for they like to parade around. They like to present themselves and parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. And oh, how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and at the head table at banquets. Yet, here's the deal. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious. There's that word pretend. They fake it. They're not real. They pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. And listen to this. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. Do you think Jesus takes fakeness and hypocrisy lightly? Not at all. He couldn't stand it. He saw it to be a sickness and another part of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 23, he talks about the Pharisees a little bit more in their hypocrisy. Matthew 23, he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but catch this. But don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do, every single thing they do is for show. They're pretending. They're fake. On their arms they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside and they wear robes with extra long tassels. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. And then he comes over. I mean, like he, Jesus unloads the wagon right here in Matthew 23. If you want to read it, read it. He grilled them. And he, he starts and calls, you, you, you hypocrites. You snakes. You, you cheats, you liars, and you fakes. And then in verse 25, he says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, Fakes, pretenders, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed, full of self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees. Hypocrites, pretenders, fakes. For you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. We have spent the last three weeks talking about the spiritual habits that serve as flashpoints for spiritual growth and maturity in the life of the person who is following Christ. And it is all built to this point here this morning, and it's encompassed in this attitude and this truth that's been said in so many different ways over the last two or three weeks. And it's this, and I want you to catch this, and it is so very important, especially today. Right and proper living is born out of everyday habits. That who you are and what you are doing in private is exactly what people are seeing of you in public. Right living, authentic living, genuine, true, no hypocrisy detected living is born out of the habits that you cultivate in your life every single day. 
the disciplines that you do in your life every single day. Our true self, guys, has to be cultivated in private before we can ever bring us into the wider community. Now, that doesn't mean that we are perfect or that we have to be perfect before we come into community, but it does mean that we aim for, that we strive for transformation. And more than just transformation, it means that we aim for and strive for honesty with ourselves that we are not okay, that we all need each other. After all, guys, if, if we can't be honest with ourselves, that's the start of everything. And if we can't do that, how in the world could we expect people to be honest and open with us? It's kind of like if you would imagine if you had a company or if you had a business and you wanted to take that company and you wanted to go public with it. You wanted to put your company on the stock market. You don't just do that. You don't be like one day, you know, like, I, my company's doing really well. I think I'm just stock market. That's what we're doing. There is a lot that has to go into that. If you're going to do that, you need to have a certain grasp on things about your company. Certain things need to be in place for your company to go public. In the very same way, our public person, the, the reputation that we build with people needs to be in line with our private practice, our habits, our disciplines that we have. We must cultivate our heart in the secret place been said that the most important part of a person's life is the part that only God sees. That's where it's truly at. That's what we take care of. That's what we cultivate. That's what we manicure and we manage is that inner person, our personal character. And that is so beautifully illustrated in scripture. Daniel chapter six, it tells this about Daniel and what's going on in his life in the first five verses of Daniel six. It says, Darius decided the king of the time, decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and to protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself. He proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. And then check this. I love this moment. Then the other administrators got really super jealous and got super petty. And they started searching for some way that they could find fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs. But, catch this, they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn Daniel. What they saw of Daniel in public is exactly what you would get of Daniel in private, he was faithful, he was always responsible, and he was completely trustworthy. And so they concluded, if we can't get him on this grounds, our only chance of finding the grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. And this really was the bedrock, this was the foundation for everything in Daniel's life. This is what made Daniel, Daniel. And so continuing in verse 10 and 11, they, they make a rule and they make a law, if you will remember, if you don't, let me summarize. Basically, the king, well, actually, these administrators come and they sneakily say, hey, king, here's a great law. Like, sign this one into law. How about anybody for, like, the next several days that doesn't bow down and doesn't pray to you or prays to anybody but you will be thrown into the lion's den? That's where we get the story of Daniel the lion's den. This is everything that leads up to it. And in verse 10 through 11, catch what happens in these two verses. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual. 
Those are so important, those words. As usual in his upstairs room, with its windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done. Do you catch who Daniel is? Daniel's not fake. Daniel's not trying to show anything that he's not. This is what he does usually. Giving thanks to his God, then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help, as he had usually done, as had always been the case in Daniel's life, that he did this every single day. He cultivated this habit in his life, in the secret place, so that what you saw in the secret is exactly what you got of Daniel in public. There was no pretension. There was no ounce of pretending in Daniel. The moment, guys, that we start pretending in our lives, the moment that we have fake show up in our lives is the moment that we stop growing. And when we're pretending, we're moving further away from others and we're moving further away from God. But this is absolutely not the picture that we get in Scripture. It's not the model that Scripture presents to us of how we are to live our life. And on the contrary, our scripture for this morning, if you have your Bibles, is in Hebrews chapter 10. Three very short and very important verses of what it means to be a community, what it means to properly live our lives. The writer of Hebrews has spent the first nine chapters of Hebrews talking about Christ and what Christ has done for us, and that everything that we do in life is because we stand on Christ and what he has done for us. And then we come to this moment in Hebrews chapter 10, and in verses 23, 25, he gives us three let us's. Starting off in verse 23, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. And then here's where I want to focus in on, in verses 24 and 25. Let us, let us think, let us do, let us act in this way of ways that we can motivate one another to acts of love, and do good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And I think oftentimes we pretend because we're scared that if people knew the real us, they knew what was deep down in there, if they knew the brokenness that made us who we are, that they wouldn't like us. We kid ourselves with that all the time. You know what? I'm not going to put myself out there. I'm not going to open myself up because if somebody really knew who I was, they wouldn't like me. And here's the deal. If there is any truth to that, maybe there are some things that God needs to fix in you. But by definition, I want you to hear this. Whether it's here at church on a Sunday morning or it's a community that you pursue outside of this, uh, these walls, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, Guys, community is the place that we bring all of ourself. Community church should be the place that we bring all of our baggage, all of our inconsistencies, all of our rough edges, all of our shortcomings, all, every last bit of it. Nothing withheld, no fakeness, no pretending, no play acting. And community, guys, is where, despite all of that baggage and all those rough edges, we should experience all the grace and all the love and all of the truth of everybody around us. How in the world do I know this to be the ideal? What we should shoot for, not just because Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, because if Christ is the center of the community that I'm talking about and I'm proposing this morning, here's the deal, guys. 
Christ loved all of each of us in this room this morning. Every last bit of us. Christ accepted us when we were at our worst, when we were less than our best. But here's the deal. Christ challenged us to move from who we are and towards who he wants us to be and who he has called us to be. But that's a process, guys. It's not one point in time that we magically wake up one morning and you're like, well, got rid of that problem. I'm all good now. It's the rest of your life. And we don't come to Christ and we don't come to Christ-centered community whole. That never, ever happens. But we're made whole first by Christ and then those who are in community around us. That's the whole message of Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. And verses 24 and 25 are very explanatory in what is true and what true and authentic and deep community looks like. What does it say here in Hebrews 10? Look back at it again. Christ-centered community, community in its essence, is motivating one another to acts of love and good works. And here's what we don't catch in our modern English translation that the writer gives us here. We don't catch everything that's going on in these two verses and what the author is exactly trying to say. The NIV translates it this way. It says that we are called to spur one another on. The English Standard Version states that we are to stir one another up. The Greek word actually uses one that means inciting or irritating someone. And while that sounds very negative and it's usually negative in its use, it can have positive undertones. Literally what, what the writer is saying here in Hebrews, what he's urging his readers to is that we provoke one another. That we, that we jab at one another, we, we cut at someone to stir up love and affection and compassion and care and concern and so many other emotions so that we must respond. Now, that's a little bit different definition of a community, right? Like, sometimes community is just very generic. Like, we're just, like, we're community. We're here together. I see you. You see me, so we're community, right? Wrong. Community is us caring enough about each other that we are willing to get in each other's lives and poke at each other so that we can be made better. We can be what Christ makes us to be. It's almost like if you were to be outside working or someone working and you got a massive gash on your hand. You wouldn't look at that and be like, huh, well, would you look at that? And then just keep on going. You wouldn't do that, would you? I mean, you'd freak out probably if you're me because I'm a baby like that, but I'd freak out. And then you address that. You respond to what is happening. You're compelled and you're called to do something about that gash on your hands. The same thing is true about community in a church. You are compelled to do something because of the love that Christ has put into you. But here's a really hard question, guys, and let's just be really honest. Are we even close to that in the church today? Are we even close to that type of community in the church today? Are we, are we encouraging? Are we motivating? Are we caring enough to enter into and draw each other into community? Probably not. Probably not most of the time. So the question is this, how in the world do we get to such a place of, of being isolated and isolating others? How do we spiral into a place of fantasy and fakeness? 
Because here is what's really interesting about our society. For probably the first time in all of history, in a very unique way, we have convinced ourselves that we don't really need each other to get by in life. And by and large in our society today, that is very true. We just simply don't need other people to help us survive and to get along in life. After all, most of us think we are perfectly capable of doing that by ourselves. Thank you very much. Now stay out of it. I mean, sure, we need the UPS or the FedEx driver or the mail carrier to bring us our package from Amazon. Or we need the server at Applebee's to bring us our burger. But really, guys, we have truly worked ourselves into a life where we have convinced ourselves that we don't really need anybody else. Sebastian Junger, in his book, Tribe, expands on this thinking and he says it this way. As society modernized, people found themselves able to live independently from any communal group. A person living in a modern city or a suburb, which is by and large most people today, can for the first time in history go through an entire day or through an entire life, mostly encountering complete and perfect strangers. They can be surrounded by others, and yet they feel deeply and dangerously alone. I would smush all that together and say that they can be surrounded by everyone, and yet they can know no one all at the same time. 